for many of us, the same people who showed up at the Capitol were the same people in the streets in uniform fighting us. going on everybody welcome to the habituation room podcast live stream how are you i hope everyone's good i hope it has been a glorious spring day and that the antibodies of covid and or the microchip is working its way into your system just as planned um I got my appointment for my first dose of Pfizer, first dose of Pfizer. Does it come with health care? No. Um, but I'm excited. I'm like, you know, I'm happy. I did my first stand-up show this week in weekend in like forever. And that felt good. I hope I didn't get COVID from one of those dirty, dirty comics. But we have such a good show for you this evening. I'm so pumped. Uh, Nato Green is here, as always, such a treat, as well as Professor Robin D.G. Kelly, um, uh, the author of Freedom Dreams, the author of Hammer and Ho, all about uh, black um, labor organizing in the South, and and just like a thinker and intellectual that you need to know about, who has... Um, who's imaginative, who's radical, who's creative, um, who wrote a whole biography of Thelonious Monk. He is here. I'm super honored to have him here with us and super honored that you guys are here. If you are on YouTube, click that like button right now. And hey, why don't you subscribe? And hey, why don't you ring the bell so that you know when we're going live and you can rush from your little woodworking project in whatever garage you don't have uh, over to the computer to watch live. Do that. And also, if you're on Twitch, follow the channel. Subscribe right now. Become a subscriber. Use your Bezos bucks for good. And uh, subscribe on Twitch. It's it's super easy. Um, Another exciting thing. We're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff. We're talking about Joe Manchin. We're talking about QAnon. We're talking about efforts to recall Governor Newsom here in California. Um, We're going to talk about stopping fascism with black Marxism. That's right. Um, But we're also going to be digging into the Amazon defeat of the Union Drive in Bessemer, Alabama, what that means, why it happened. I think you all know that NATO Green is a union organizer and that we have had um, Jane McAlevey, who's also a union organizer and an author on this show before. So we're going to dig into all of that after our show for all the patrons. That means if you want to be part of that discussion right now, you got to become a patron. Patreon.com slash habituation room. It's going to be so good. Uh, Robin just wrote something on Bessemer. Uh, NATO has, I know, been doing a lot of thinking on it. And and I'm excited to hear um, because it was, a, it was a huge blow. It felt bad. And I think we all are eager to know wh- where we go from here and why. Like, why did it fail? Why did this union drive fail other than the fact that Amazon is evil and they will stop at nothing? That's obvious. Um, but, but in, in that vein of, of patrons, it is time to thank all of the patrons out there who've been given, who've been given $10 or more, as well as big tippers and subs on Twitch. You guys, this is Lay Fart Song. 
Thank you to Mugly W, Dan S, Chris L for joining the Orchada Armada. Yes, bitch. Um, thank you, Big Tippers, Brent A, Gary H, Joseph L, Karen K. For the Twitch subscribers, Magnum Satan, Good for Gabby, Verity NS, Becca1350, 9. And Poe the freaking Reekin' Dragon, thank you so much for being, again, a subscriber on Twitch for another month. And uh, also... Uh, oh, wait. Oh, no. Joseph L.? I can't remember what I said. I'm just gonna dance it out. Dance, dance, dance it out, dance it out, dance it out. I already did this. Okay. And that is the fart song, you guys. Thank you so much for being patrons. Patreon.com slash Bituation Room. If you want to get this bonus content, we're talking about Bessemer. And we may, if we have time, talk about Mr. Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson. Um, just wear a hood, buddy. <laughs> just put it on, okay? Just do it. Uh, and and let's get into what we're all bitching about. You guys, uh, this is uh, what are you bitching about now? Okay, my turn. You guys let me know in the comments, but here's what I will say. I've been talking to a journalist friend of mine who did a whole uh, story about how pandemics are formed, how to get the next pandemic. It was called Virus Hunters on Vice. If you have Showtime, watch it. It's very good. Essentially, the fact that we're now out, sort of out of this pandemic, maybe just the United States, even though we totally don't deserve all of these vaccines that we've gotten and we really should spread a generic um, vaccine to the rest of the world, we're starting to leave this moment of hell. And it is important to stop the next pandemic before it starts. And what I'm bitching about is the fact that all the things we knew were a problem before um, continue to be a problem, and yet no one's seriously talking about it. And that is the fact that all these nar-nar bat diseases come from massive deforestation and the fact that we have urban sprawl and uh, mono crops and cultures um, and global financial capitalism requiring the mono crops and cultures, um, industrial meat farming, and everything else that is destroying our planet systematically. And then, lo and behold, is destroying the animals. And all the little pecking order, you got the bunnies, you got the bigger bunnies, and then the biggest bunnies. You know what I'm saying? Like all the other animals who our who are our buffer between Narnar bat virus and the reason we can't go outside. And not, that has not been addressed. The fact that um, it is thanks to the massive degradation of our climate and environment that we're insured to get not, th not just a virus this bad, but far worse. Um, they called it in this episode of Vice a dress rehearsal for a future pandemic. And I'm scared. Now, I know you guys are going to say, why, Francesca, why are you scared? You know, why not just be joyful? I'm happy. I'm joyful. I want the shot. Stick me, please. But also, I'm scared for the future. Can I not freak out about the future? I think I think we should. So anyway, um, 
we need to stop the deforestation. We need to pay. We need to absolutely pay countries like Brazil to not deforest the Amazon. Um, you know, we need to think about this globally. Obviously, reinvesting in the World Health Organization is a start. Um, but there's so much more we need to do. The internationalism involved, the amount of coordination, um, the thinking about our planet as interconnected, the basic shit. Um, so I'm bitching about that. I'm bitching about the fact that, like, we're going to have another virus. It's going to be bad. And who knows? We still might not have universal health care in the United States. So, yeah. That's what I'm bitching about. And to join me in my little den of bitching, uh, <laughs> I'd love to bring in a comedian and union organizer and um, mixologist without a funny mustache or fedora, although I'm sure he has a fedora close by. Please welcome Mr. Nato Green. Hello. Hey, everybody. What's going uh, on? I, I don't, I have hats, but I don't have a fedora. I have like a, like a page hat. Schoolboy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever that I got it, that I got in, from a tweed shop in Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally. Um, good Nato to see you. Good to see you. What are you bitching about this fine Sunday evening? Well, so uh, today I got I got the second shot of the Pfizer and Pfizer vaccine. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's misleading to it, the Johnson and Johnson is one shot. Pfizer and Pfizer is two shots. It's the Johnson and the Pfizer and Pfizer. It's not the Pfizer and Johnson. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You, you, you've so, you've made this case fervently on the show before, and I, I, know, I stand I'm by. I'm committed it. to it. Yeah. So yeah. I'm gonna I'm 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 gonna make it a thing. Um, so I got the second shot of the Pfizer and Pfizer today and, uh, you know, and it's like a real toss up. Like, do you, you know, it's like, it's really hard to wrestle with like, oh, on the one hand, like my arm could hurt and I, maybe I'll be sleepy for a few hours or everyone I love could die. Like, oh, I'm on the fence. Like, how do I, <laughs> how do I know whether to take the vaccine or not? Um, and then, uh, and so then I got there and they're like, do you, you know, be like, keep an eye out if you're going to have, you might have side effects. Like you might feel itchy, and I was like, "Well, but I'm already always like on the verge of dying of ashiness," and they're like, <laughs> "Not, not like that." And they're like, and "You might get sleepy," and I was like, "I'm a father of twins. Like, of course I'm fucking sleepy. What are we talking about?" <laughs> um, so, um, uh, yeah, itchy, sleepy. This is itchy, what are they sleepy. Like that's my permanent state. So <laughs> then, but what I'm bitching about is that like. Like, honestly, I was so moved by the operation. Like, I was at Moscone Center in San Francisco, the big convention center, and it's just this well-oiled machine of, like, you know, people waving you along, and everyone's happy, and it's, like, you know, there's adequate signage, which I appreciate, and, like, like it's uplifting but non-threatening music. Do you know what I mean? Mm, like, mm. what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Like oh, that. great song. Yeah, you know, that kind of stuff. Great uh, vaccination song. It was a great vaccination song. Um, and, and so like, it was just, I was, I was it, like, I got emotional. That, like, what are at, drugs? Baby, yeah. don't hurt me. Uh, don't got, hurt me. Mm -hmm. Um, Sorry. And, and then like, you got I, so you even, got emotional. I got emotional. Like even like when I got the first shot, I immediately like dropped my vaccination card on the ground and like, like a homeless person was like, Hey, you dropped this. Um, and so like, I took pains to like put it in a special place so I wouldn't lose it. And then I still forgot it when I went back down there and they were like, don't worry, honey, we got you. We'll give you another card. So I was just like, I got emotional by the whole thing. And so what I, what I'm bitching about is that they didn't have 
a crying station at the at the <laughs> vaccination uh, site so that you could like for those of us who are just like overcome with the emotion of like what a what a like hellish year and battle this has been going through yeah. this pandemic and like like how much of the like grief and loss that we've been holding at bay and to like to see the light at the end of the tunnel and the beginning of hope uh yeah. that i just needed a little if you're going to get emotional please step yeah. to your left follow the blue arrows to the crying quadrant yeah so um, let the emotionally crippled through and yeah. stand aside. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> go into the separate chamber under the cardboard cutout of Anthony Fauci. Like, why can't, <laughs> why wasn't that option available to me? Just Anthony Fauci in like pillow form and you just kind of yeah. hug, like roll in it. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. And uh, so who are you going to like unabashedly hug first? Like just no restraint. Um, uh, oh, I mean, well, you, am I going to hug you? Oh, first? wow. That's crazy. That Thank you. I'm so honored. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't. No, I mean, I think, uh, uh, I mean, you know, I, like I, I, I've realized that I, like we, I need to be, you know, in this, in this me too era, I need to do better communication about hugging. And so I need to be like, Hey, I'm available for hugs. If anyone is interested in hugging, if not, that's totally cool. But if you're into it, I'm here for hugs. Um, I'll get you that shirt. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good, that's a very good habituation uh, right there. So, um, so that, mean, that means that that in two weeks, two weeks from now, I, according to the CDC, like if you're two weeks post-vaccination, you can be indoors with another household with masks off. Uh, and so like, Cause you know how I get down. Like I'm like, you know, I've only been cooking for my immediate family for the last year. And so what it means is that in two weeks I get to start hosting people for dinner again and cook shit that my kids won't eat. Um, and so I'm starting to plan like who, who do I want to have for dinner? Yeah. Uh, this is where there's a lot of friend circles here. This is very political. Yeah. Who are you? Who do you invite first? Um, you know, the Watsons or the Jensen's or the Flotsam's or the Jetsons. I don't know why. I think I'm just talking about Ursula's eels. Um, sure. Congrats, NATO. I'm excited for you. But we have to get into this week. A lot happened. Okay. Also, I'm not, I'm not drinking everyone tonight because I'm, I was told to stay hydrated. It's, it's going to be a long ass show. Yeah. That's why. Maybe I'm very excited. Later. All right. Go ahead. The week where. <laughs> The week where, uh, okay, first of all, a lot of things happened. Biden called for gun reform on something called ghost guns. What? Uh, Biden unveiled a big old budget that actually increased military spending. A House ethics panel is investigating Matt Gates, even though they totally all looked at the nudes that he had on his phone. Um, Prince Philip cut down at the tender age of 99. The rapper DMX dies of a heart attack. Iran nuclear talks are resuming in the Amazon warehouse vote in Bessemer, Alabama fell short, but here... Our, our top stories. This is The Week Where. This was The Week Where. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin once again proved he's the aging pop star of Congress, trying to stay relevant by playing both sides of the aisle in the same way that Madonna kissed both Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera at the 2003 VMAs. 
And in that analogy, Democrats are clearly Christina Aguilera. Total short end of that stick, man. Nobody cared. Um, this week, Manchin said that his recommitment to the very imaginary center was spurred by Trump supporters' January 6th attack on the Capitol. Take a look. January 6th changed me, and I was very clear with everybody. I never thought in my life, I never read in history books, to where our form of government had been attacked at our seat of government, which is Washington, D.C., at our capital by our own people. Now, the British did it, but not Americans. So something told me, wait a minute, pause, hit the pause button, something's wrong. You can't have this many people split to where they want to go to war with each other. So that is his rationale for why we need to work together as Republicans and Democrats. See, Joe Manchin isn't a partisan hack, you guys, okay? He wanted the mob to hang Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi, all right? And it wasn't the months of lies about a stolen election that led to divisions. It was the Democrats who couldn't just share the presidency. Just share it. It's... uh. It's such a, I mean, so, so partly it's like he, before, before January 6th, he said that he opposed, uh, ending the filibuster and he opposed the Green New Deal and he opposed Medicare for all and he opposed the $15 an hour minimum wage. But then Jan- January 6th changed him and mm-hmm. he still opposes all those things. Um, but for different <laughs> reasons. So, yeah. uh, and it's like it's so depressing that you know Pete, there was like rec, you know this like massive effort to uh, to like turn out voters and and elect Joe Biden president and enact uh, a, an, a, an a, you know an agenda and change things and solve our fundamental problems and it turns out that we just made Joe Manchin the president like because of how the filibuster works that because mm-hmm. like six fucking oil barons in Appalachia are like, no, we don't want a Green New Deal, then the rest of us can't have it because of how the filibuster works in the Senate. So Joe Manchin wrote wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post this week about the filibuster. And he said, and uh, and he said, I have always said, if I can't go home and explain it, I can't vote for it. So we're stuck with garbage because Joe Manchin is bad at explaining stuff to people in West Virginia. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure that Joe Manchin listens to the Bituation Room, and so I will volunteer to do it. I will volunteer on his behalf to go to West Virginia. Let's make it a reality show. Left-wing Jew from San Francisco is ready to roam Appalachia explaining socialist politics to the people of West Virginia. Uh, and uh, and let's, we'll film it. We'll be able to fund the Green New Deal belt that way. Um, yeah. And uh, it'll be a very entertaining. Yeah, Netflix views will absolutely fund the Green New Deal. First of all, it's coal barons, NATO. Okay, Appalachia, coal. What did I say? Um, oil. I feel like that's a little off. Did I but say? Did I say oil? I meant coal. You said you meant yeah, exactly. Get it straight. Get your fossil fuels together. No, he did write this op-ed. You guys, I don't know if you read it, and he said my favorite part of it, in addition to that, he couldn't explain stuff was that he he said if we change the filibuster like the reason we're in in problems now is because we've been changing the filibuster and if we change it now quote our nation may never see stable governing again and i'm like buddy do you know where you work <laughs> have you 
is this day one? Are you just getting your, you know, acquainted with the Senate chambers here? Let me show you where the Senate chamber meets. Oh, sorry. It's been overrun by a mob radicalized by the Republican Party into believing the Democratic votes don't count. Oops, didn't check in with that. Um, I love this take from Harold Meyerson of The American Prospect uh, writing in response to this filibuster um, bipartisan BS that Manchin said he's like now not supporting reforming or changing the filibuster. Um, he writes, the filibuster was and is an effect of polarization, not its cause. If Manchin could actually discern the difference, he'd note that the steady rightward gallop of the GOP has eliminated the middle ground on which bipartisan could sometimes take root. And that rightward gallop has been spurred not by the filibuster, but by the growth of counterfactual right-wing media and even more counterfactual right-wing social media, the counterfactual presidency of Donald Trump and the growing racial, gender, religious, and cultural intolerance within the Republican base, fearful of the decline of white male Christian traditionalist hegemony and the apocalyptic stoking of those fears by Republican politicians and media. The end. <laughs> Tell it. Hell yeah. It's just, I love though, like his idea, you see him in this interview, right? The interview we just played for you. He's so clueless. He's so unsure of like who he's playing to, why he's playing to them, whether it's helping his brand, you know, does he need to start a TikTok? Like, you know, it, he's just sort of stabbing in the dark. And yeah, I, I don't think he's explained anything to West Virginians in a long time. Yeah, I, I always like occasionally I play this game of like the, the follow up question that I wish a reporter would ask. Yes. Uh, and the follow up question I wish a reporter would ask Joe Manchin is Have you in your 30 years in elected office ever met a single voter who said <laughs> my number one priority for government the one thing that i want the most is yeah. bipartisanship like yeah. like that's not no one cares like people don't want bipartisanship people want problem solved Yes. And, you know, and so or, or what about uh, the filibuster? Like, hey, sir, right. excuse me. Look, I can't put food on the table, but I'm really concerned about Senate. We gotta rules. Be protected. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really concerned about who's going to vote for cloture. That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> what about I budget have reconciliation? I have, the, I have the black lung. But what about that cloture vote? It's like, what are you talking about? I can't reconcile my finances, but who will reconcile the budget? Uh, like, yeah, no, it doesn't happen. And that's a thing, obviously, if you guys don't know, the filibuster is, you know, the cock block of progress. It is preventing everything from H.R. 1, voting rights protection, to the PRO Act, um, supporting unionization in the country. Anything we want passed somehow goes through Joe Manchin's thick, empty skull. That's what we've decided. That's what we've decided. Anyway, someone mentioned in the comments that he's going to change his tune in about a week. I totally agree. So this will be probably irrelevant in, I don't know, half an hour. We'll see who else gives him an op-ed. But let's move on. This was the week where a guy named Ron Watkins, one of the hosts of the white nationalist misogynist conspiracy theorist website 8chan, or eight kun or kun, I don't know what it is, uh, essentially confessed in an HBO documentary called Q Into the Storm that he 
is actually Q. Um, this was years after the documentarian Cullen Hoback traced the origins and development of the QAnon conspiracy theory. And here's the moment in the documentary where Ron Watkins low-key confesses while on video chat uh, to Hoback. Something shocking. Ron hadn't just been participating in Q research. It sounded like he was leading it. Yeah, so thinking back on it, like uh, it's basically, it was basically three years of intelligence training teaching normies how to do intelligence work. It's basically what I was doing anonymously before, but never as Q. See that smile? Ron had slipped up. He knew it, and I knew it. And after three tireless years of cat and mouse, well... <laughs> <laughs> no, never is cute, I promise. Never is Because okay. I am not cute. <clears throat> it never was. Oh, man. Okay, so... What? Uh, so if you didn't, if you were just listening, um, that is the moment after so many, many years of interviewing this guy, Ron Watkins, who runs the site 8chan, um, that, you know, and he was denying and denying that he even knew what Q was. He had no idea that he was basically saying, no, yeah, I've been on the Q research forums. I've posted anonymous, anonymously to the forums. I've posted anonymously to Twitter about Q, um, and, and I've basically been doing this for years and years, um, trying to train normies, i.e. QAnon believers, into thinking that they're doing military intelligence, um, essentially with the things that I post. And then there's an awkward moment where he's like, but not as Q, not as the actual Q, and then laughs. And so that's when you heard sort of the uncomfortable laughter of this documentarian and this guy. Um, and it was... One of the interesting things, I didn't watch the whole doc, but I watched some of it, which is that this guy, Ron Watkins, and his dad, who are just Nazis, pretty much, um, they want credit. Like, he secretly, like any idiot villain, they don't want to just go unnoticed. They want the accolades, right? They want to, like, they want the acclaim and they want recognition for the fact that they duped a whole bunch of people. The biggest part about this, though, is do you think QAnon supporters give a shit? No. Uh, according to Vice, none of the main QAnon influencer accounts have mentioned the documentary. And in one of the few discussion threads on Gab, only one person posted, quote, Q is a group of genius level military intelligence with very high security clearances. There is zero chance Ron or Q is directly involved with the operation. Now, I love that because, uh, it just shows that QAnon followers don't just think that like Trump is hunting pedophile Democrats, but that there's such a thing as genius military intelligence. Like the U.S. didn't invade two countries to try and get Osama bin Laden only to find him in neither of those countries. You're like, how intelligent are we talking here? <laughs> like, no, they're like, but it's like a special unit. Just a special unit, dude. Um, NATO, you you just want the like the Scooby Doo unmasking, like ah, oh, I would have gotten away with it except for you pesky kids. <laughs> yes. Dude, if you watch this dog, the dad really does look like a Scooby Doo character. You know, just like like overly parted and gelled hair. You know, it's always that in like sort of a tan jacket. 
same same vibe. What was his name? Ron Watkins, and he was like, was he like in the tundra doing this interview? What was happening? So he lives in Japan. Uh, he was also used to live in the Philippines on a pig farm, apparently. Um, and the the documentary is fascinating. And and his dad, he and his dad essentially, there was an original Q poster. Someone did post initially, but what the basically the theories now, um, according to a lot of people who like write and study about like the conspiracy theory, is that these guys, once they wrested control of 8chan, because it wasn't actually their initial platform, they wrested control from the founder that they were the ones perpetuating all and doing all the so-called drops. Um, this is a, a writer for The Daily Dot writes, uh, he's been tracking this a while, this guy Mike Rothschild, he says, there are a few other people who could have and would have made Q drops other than the person who ran the place where they were posted. QAnon can't exist without the Watkinsons and 8kun without Q's devotees. Um, it may as well not exist. Like, their site exists only because of Q also. So, it is a little bit of a like, it was the groundskeeper! Because he was there keeping the grounds. And that makes sense. <laughs> I, I, as I listen to you, I realize that I don't understand anything that you're talking about. Like, <laughs> like this is such a like. I really like. I'm generally aware of this stuff, but I've really resisted it. And so I'm like, I don't know what Achan or Drops or Gab. Like the idea of putting in the energy. It feels like like the same as what like how I've avoided understanding pickup artist lingo. And like the difference between different subsects of men's rights activists, like, yep. like I don't, I don't have, like I know that I know some people who really like to spend time understanding what's going on in the right wing, but I got shit to do, man. I've got cocktails that need mixing, so. <laughs> uh, I think you're healthier for it, but yes, I agree with you. I was, it was funny because back, uh, back in 2016, we as Newsbrook did a sketch called Alt Right Rocks. And like Matt Lieb convinced us, he was like, no, 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 we should do a sketch making fun of the alt-right. I swear it's like this up and coming like Nazi thing. They're on forums, they're on 4chan, they're on 8chan. And we were like, what chan, who chan, what? Like, I don't know, what are you talking about? Why is it chan? Is that someone's last name? Like it was, and we were like, let's not do that. I don't want to talk about that. And then we did it and it did really, the sketch did really well. It was very funny. We were making fun of how racist, misogynistic, these are, this is where Gamergate grew out of. This is where, um, again, QAnon conspiracies, all the most like heinous, misogynistic and racist ideologies are being born on these, these websites. And then Trump won the election. And so, and everyone knew who Richard Spencer was. And our sketch was the least funny shit ever because it would just became real. We were like, oh God. Q, if you're listening, fuck you, dude. Okay? Yeah, I said it. Oh, and yeah, spicy take, dog. Spicy take. And also, I it, it bothers me that he's Hapa, that he's half Asian. Like, I'm sorry. It just bothers me as a, as a half Asian. Oh, come get your people, Francesca. I need to come get half of my people. <laughs> all of, which is all of my people but yes it's very annoying um all right we'll move on everyone should watch that documentary it's fascinating it's gross it's weird it's interesting um but yeah try and try and get get into it um finally this was the week where we discovered celebrity and former athlete caitlin jenner is discussing a possible run as a republican for california's governorship should the efforts to recall current governor governor gavin newsom actually succeed um that's right Caitlyn Jenner, 
the transgender Olympian is going to be a candidate in a party whose main concern is stopping transgender people in sports. It feels like a little self-defeating. Is she just going to lose on purpose? Like it's unclear where the 70 chess happens here, but it might not be a terrible idea. Um, remember in 2003, Governor uh, Gray Davis was recalled and replaced by Republican Arnold Schwarzenegger, proving that we Californians are liberal, but if you're famous and have muscles, we'll follow you to the ends of the earth. Just give us your diet tips or whatever. Um, Thus far, if you guys don't know, the, there's a petition to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. It has yet to qualify for the ballot. Signatures are being verified. Um, then the finance department has to produce a cost estimate because, like, somehow don't, there's still money left. Don't skip over the most important detail about the recall campaign. <laughs> what is that? My favorite part of the recall campaign against Governor Gavin Newsom is that the recall campaign is being run by an eyepatch-wearing veteran political consultant whose real name is Randy Economy. <laughs> is it is it too uh, on the nose for Republican grandstanding about loss of commerce due to COVID re restrictions to be named literally horny for the free market? Randy Economy. People said we wouldn't have anything to joke about Trump, but here comes his crack campaign team of thirsty profit accumulation to mess invisible hand and Bill Cosby. <laughs> Randy Economy. That's his name. Yeah. You've got to run for office with a name. Who name? Um, where? How? I really need to know the origin of the economy family. He's from the uh, one of the Palm Springs economies. Ah, uh, yeah. Was it shortened from like Econo Econowitz or something? Like, <laughs> like when he came over? <laughs> is that is that this is Ellis Island name? This is Ellis Island name. Oh God. Um. Oh, so yeah, obviously. Governor Gavin Newsom is saying it's a it's a Republican recall effort. And yes, it has a lot to do with Republicans in the state thinking that he didn't do a good job in terms of um, shutting down the state and trying to keep people safe. Basically, Huntington Beach wants to be Miami Beach like they want their own Governor Ron DeSantis, someone who has the decency to lie to them about covid deaths. Just lie. Just be tan and lie. Cook the books. Um. But there are some people who don't like Newsom, i.e. the two people you see on screen right now, uh, for other reasons. NATO, what do you what do you make of this entire recall effort? Um, look, I mean, you know, it's like it's like Newsom was great at the beginning of the pandemic because he was listening to scientists and then he started caving to political pressure. And it was like, we're reopening. We're locking down again. We're reopening. We're locking down again. It just felt like they were trying to close control the pandemic using the, the rhythm method. Um, and, uh, and like, and the, you know, Newsom, like Gavin Newsom is new to the sort of statewide and national imagination, but you know, he was elected mayor of San Francisco in 2003. So like we've been dealing with his bullshit for a long time and Newsom thinks that he's Christian Bale Batman, but he's really Val Kilmer Batman, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. It, you know, and so before he was in political life, he, uh, he owned a, a a wine shop in the Marina District of San Francisco. It was like a bougie wine store for like men with sweater vests. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, and women in yoga pants and strollers. And I know. And women in yoga, right? And it was just like, and the name of the company is Plump Jack, which is the term for ejaculating from a limp penis. Uh, it's a technical term. Um, so, 
Like I've just, I can't know, tell which of that sentence is a lie and which is real. It's actually called plump jack. It is actually called plump jack. Yes. Damn. The definition is, is, is made up. Uh, but, uh, that's really the name is plump. Jack. Okay. Cause I was going to just Google that right now and I don't know what I would have found. Anywho. You, you, you don't want to go, go, don't do not, no one Google ejaculating from a limp penis. I think, <laughs> I think we can all agree that <laughs> that would be a bad idea. This is, by the way, we're going to do Yahoo answers and questions because Yahoo uh -huh. questions is going away, but I feel like that's a really good Yahoo question. Uh-huh. Can you ejaculate from a limp penis? Um, this is a serious show, you guys. Uh <laughs> we're very smart. <laughs> we're very smart. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he's enlisting a lot of support, like Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris, um, which arguably are not the same politician, but both support Newsom. I, I mean, I, just... I, I do think it's like, like, I don't think people, you know, kids today don't remember the recall in 2003. And like, because not only did we elect Governor Schwarzenegger, but the way that the recall ballot works is that there's no primary. And so it's a two question ballot. Do you want to recall the governor? And if yes, who should the new governor be? And there were like 60 candidates and they, you mm -hmm. got to vote for all of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Schwarzenegger was the one who won. There was some like establishment Democratic candidate, this guy Cruz Bustamante, who like was just some party hack uh, that no one liked. But also like Larry Flint ran in that election. Yes. Gary Coleman from Different Strokes yes. ran in that election. Yes. yes. Like, it was ridiculous. And but part of the problem, like like I I don't think Arnold. Newsom is, Newsom is, is not it? actually going to get recalled because he's still pretty popular. And the state is way more democratic than it was in 2003. And he's done better stuff and people like him more. Like like core democratic constituencies still like him more than anyone ever liked Gray Davis. Like with Gray Davis, at best, people were like, eh, I guess so. Like, right. uh, but- right. my, uh, my mom still likes Gavin Newsom, uh, which is, she's a barometer for, she's like Wo Judy Woodruff on PBS and Gavin Newsom. Very, uh -huh. very middle of the road. Um, <laughs> and so far, he doesn't have any sex scandals, although he did sleep with Kimberly Guilfoyle many times, probably. They were married. And they, well, that doesn't mean anything. But yes, they were also married. So Kimberly so, Guilfoyle is, is currently uh, stooping. Uh, yes. uh, Donald Trump Jr. And this is something that I do want you to Google. Bituation Room listeners, if you haven't seen it, just Google Gavin Newsom, Kimberly Guilfoyle, Harper's Bazaar. Because yeah, we, in, we go to this photo once every six months. It, because in 2004, like there was this, when, when Newsom and, and Guilfoyle were, were uh, married still, there was this, uh, like, this is how ridiculous it was at the time. There was a, a big, like, glossy photo spread in Harper Bazaar with a photo shoot of them in, like, formal wear, like him in a tuxedo, her in an evening gown, lying on the ground, uh, you know, like, on a rug in a mansion. It looked like it was the epitome of all dressed up and nowhere to go. Like, clearly, you have come from too much money if you, could, if you have formal wear, if you have lying on the ground formal wear. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. if you, like... Like if you had to lying if, on if, the ground, formal wear is just, you know what I mean. Also, like at if what you were point, all, he, but he really that's again he wants to be Batman. He wants yeah. to be Christian Bale Batman. Yeah. He's there already. He's like you know let's do the scene where um what was her name? 
What was what was Basinger's name? Damn it! It's like that was dude. Basinger was in Michael Keaton back Batman. No, I know the, the best Batman, obviously. The uh, the well, I, it de it depends. Uh, the love interest in the Christian Bale Batman was Katie Holmes in the first one, and then the second one they had the same character played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. What's up, nerds? I'm here for you. Um, uh, and they didn't even comment on it. They were like, you know what? We've had it with Katie Holmes. We're just going to bring in Maggie Gyllenhaal, who looks she totally can't different, act, sadly. playing the same character. Vicky Vale. Yes. Thank you, Neon Neil. What a name. What a yeah. name. Such a great name. Anyway, that's what he was trying to like, like reenact on his carpet. It's a disgusting image. Uh, please look it up right now. Um, Nato, we got to move on. We have right, such fine. a great guest and I'm so, 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 so happy to have him here. Um, we're going to get into it. We're going to talk about, um, this moment in, in black freedom, what the BLM movement means, um, what, uh, and what it has meant in the last few years. Um, we're going to talk about black Marxism. Uh, we're going to talk about Bessemer a little bit later on. Um, uh, this is the sitch. And joining us, he is a professor of history at UCLA and contributing editor for the Boston Review. He's the author of several books, including Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, and Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communist During the Great Depression. Please welcome Robin D.G. Kelly. Hey, Francesca. Hey, Nato. How you doing? Hi, Robin. So good to have you here. Yeah, no, it's, I'm, I'm honored. You know, Does the D.G. stand for this guy? <laughs> My God. Yeah, I'm there's sorry. all kinds of speculations on what the DG stands for. <laughs> uh, uh, NATO out the gate, embarrassing me? Are you serious? I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm here for. I'm, I'm trying to make you look smart. <laughs> I thought Hammer and Ho was about MC Hammer's girlfriends. You know, uh, that's so funny. That's that's hilarious because that's funny. that because that was the joke in 1990. Uh -huh. That was, I mean, in other words. It, it has been circulating for a long uh -huh. time since night yeah. since that book came out like 30 years ago. Um, that, so uh, <laughs> that's, that's about my generation. <laughs> right. I'm dating myself now. That's exactly. I love how Robin's like, that's really funny. You should say that joke. I've heard a million times because. <laughs> no, I um, used to tell it. I mean, so, you know, <laughs> Robin, you were also part of the life after capitalism conference in 2004. Yes. That's in part how I know you from the New York days. And now that we are once again, after capitalism, phew, <laughs> crisis averted. Well, we uh, yeah, we should drink some champagne together. Now it's over, you know. Yes, yes. Let's just imagine. <laughs> um, but but speaking to that and, and part of what one of your very famous books is, is titled is about radical imagination. And, and I feel like we're in a moment where, um, in some ways we sort of live in this future. We're like, we're like, Oh, we see the ways that we're moving forward. And yet we're so far behind and fascism is rearing its head in ways we've never experienced, at least in my lifetime before. Um, but neoliberal capitalism is failing. We need new ideas and better ideas. They're right there. We need imagination and we need historians and thinkers like yourself. Um, and so, this conversation, I think, is going to go a little bit above my head intellectually, but I want, <laughs> and I think, but but I want to, you know, make all of your work and your thought accessible for folks uh, who have not been exposed to it yet. Um, and this week, of course, we've got another thing that's happening is it's the second week of the Derek Chauvin trial, um, the former police officer who killed George Floyd, and you have a, a new book that you're working on um, about 
the Black Lives Matter movement, this surge that we saw last year, the millions who took to the streets. Um, and I was just going to pick up on this idea that I think so much of the rage that we saw was also like how many generations is uh, are going to have to fight this exact same fight mm -hmm. that that aren't we past this? It's the year 2020, right? Um, and here you have people being lynched in the streets, uh, unarmed black men lynched in the streets. Uh, and it feels like we're at this crossroads and we're either like, look, either you're committed to equality and you're committed to liberation for black Americans, you're committed to their right to vote, to live freely, or you're committed to their subjugation. Like, which is it? How's it? And so like, how do you situate this moment in sort of the broader history of black freedom, of civil rights struggles? Like where, where do you, where are we? <laughs> right, right. That's a good question. I should also just clarify that my book is actually about how we got to the moment of 2020, which means it really is about a longer history, going back yes. really to the 18th century. So it's kind of walk through to understand kind of, you know, I, I take people who were killed by the police or killed by intimate partners and through a kind of historical autopsy, go back to the real cause of death, which sometimes is really a couple hundred years ago, or in some cases, mm -hmm. 50 years ago. So that said, that's a really excellent question because I think, you know, there's a couple things to think about. One is that, you know, we're governed by ideology, you know, uh, and this ideology, the ideology of, of white supremacy now is not so much based on the presumption of white superiority. It's actually based on, um, I mean, 21st century white supremacy is based on a kind of circulation of a myth of white subjugation, of white right. suffering, of, of, so replacement theory is all about you know, I'm the victim. And that's why you you can't, it's hard to find, well, you could find some white folks, but most white folks, you, you ask them, you know, do you want equality? The answer is we have equality. It's mm -hmm. not that we, we want to maintain our power. It's that we have equality. In fact, if anything, I'm the one that's suffering. And, and because of that, um, you know, anti-racist white people know better, but because of that, what we end up getting is a kind of reaction to social justice and anti-racist projects that actually can make life better for everybody. I mean, it's just fundamental. I mean, imagine a world without racism uh, would make would give us a better um, uh, a, a system of medicine, a better mm -hmm. system of econ a better economy. Uh, not just fairness for those who are subjugated, but actually would raise all boats. Uh, but that's not the case. The other thing is, you know, in terms of the way the Republican Party is functioning, yes, they're going straight up for voter suppression. Mm -hmm. They have been doing it for a long time. I don't, look, I'm old enough to, I don't remember a year when there wasn't some voter suppression. I mean, in the 1980s and 90s, they were burning churches you know, because people are registering voters. Um, voter suppression was just fundamental. I mean, when Jesse Jackson ran for office in 84 and in 88, voter registration was the main project that he was involved in and was push, being pushed back. Um, mm -hmm. And and here's the thing that may get me in trouble. I, I think the, I believe that the Republican party isn't just interested in disenfranchising black and brown people. It's definitely racial, mm -hmm. but it's also class. 
And what they want to do is reduce the electorate, period. They want to shrink it. Sure. Because imagine you've got people who vote Republican who would support um, Democratic policies. They don't want them to vote either. And that's right. not new. I mean, the, the Gilded Age was a period when the same time the disenfranchising Black people in the South, um, they're imposing property um, uh, laws to reduce the franchise in Massachusetts, in Rhode Island, in, you know, throughout the country. So this is just basic, this is basically the history of the United States of America. It's one that pretends to be a democracy. Uh, and those who try to make it a democracy are the ones who are often seen as the problems, the, the takers, the, the job stealers, that sort of thing. Right. It's it's interesting, like like to see the the right wing intellectual apparatus gin up, like the like National Review and some of the right wing think tanks have been putting stuff out of like we obviously don't want everybody to vote. I mean, we can't let everybody vote. We all agree that we shouldn't let five year olds vote. So once we're in a conversation about limiting people voting, then uh, then you know, then where are we? Um, I think what the like one of the things that you're saying, you know, what it raises for me um, is. Like when we think about um, sort of racism at the moment in history, like we're talking, you know, there's a conversation about anti-Asian violence and there's a conversation mm -hmm. about, you know, mass incarceration and police violence against black people. And and like sort of how do you think about sort of locating all this stuff, all th that those kind of analysis in what's happening with political economy? Oh, you mean to the anti-racist um, yeah. analysis within political economy? Well, yeah. you know, um, there's a couple of things. One is the way it's being done. And then two, it's the way I see it. <laughs> and the way it's, so part of the question is the way it's being done. You know, there, there's, a, there's a way in which um, currently um, anti-racist movements or movements against anti-Black racism, movements against anti-Asian racism, which of course has a very long history, very long history, um, it, are sometimes pitted against you know, movements for economic justice. Right. Uh, and it doesn't really make sense to me, but, you know, what ends up, but, but you can understand why. One is, you know, you have kind of a liberal agenda that would find racist violence abhorrent, but they are not necessarily the ones who believe that there should be expansion of trade unions or socialism or, you know, um, single payer healthcare. Uh, or even you know corporate accountability, mm -hmm. but they they and that's why during Black Lives Matter, uh, the the evil scoundrel Jeff Bezos could drop you know a dime for him, but ten million dollars on all these black organizations and anti-racist organizations, including Black Lives Matter. You know, so in many ways, if you take if you just take Ferguson, which is a, mm -hmm. a great kind of you know laboratory, the after the murder of Mike Brown on August 9th, 2014, um, people were coming out in the streets for justice for Mike Brown to basically end policing as they knew it, but also because policing was part of the economic infrastructure that led to, to precarity in the first place. I mean, you're talking about a place where they use ticketing and citations um, to basically generate revenue mostly from black people in in the suburb of St. Louis, this is um, North St. Louis, right? North County, and in uh, and these were citations and tickets that were just bogus. You know, not ha having an expired 
um, registration on a car that's sitting in a, in a driveway that doesn't even function, um, not mowing a lawn. And so that, that kind of pressure on the part of municipalities that are also giving huge tax breaks to companies to right. come to St. Louis, to North County, um, I mean, huge companies, and then basically make up for the loss of revenue through the taxation of black and brown people. Yeah. And that's how the police work. The police job, the job of the police is to generate revenue. And one other side to this is that as they engage in forms of police brutality and violence that are deemed illegal, deemed, you know, the city then has to have a settlement. And out of those settlements comes a whole other section or, or, or segment of finance capital, where mm-hmm. finance capital actually through police brutality bonds, then issues loans to cities that, that use basically municipal bonds to pay out these settlements. Jesus. And they make huge amounts of money off the debt service on the bonds. Um, so there's a, there's a whole machine that's operating. And I, and I guarantee you, that my people in the movement for Black Lives and many of the activists there understand that and have been talking about this and talking about the intersection. Yeah, and is that, I mean, this is, it feels like one piece and it feels like a discussion that we could have about um, what racial capitalism is and really talking about the way that manifests in in people's lives, like in Ferguson. Um, But how do you understand racial capitalism? How do you break that down for your students Um, and for folks who are like, yeah, I've become a socialist and I believe in healthcare and a Green New Deal, but um, maybe because of my personal experience or because I don't understand how it works, like I don't link race into that analysis. Right, right. And that has been... um the kind of Achilles heel, uh, not not for the last fifty years, but from uh, you know from the from the inception of capitalism and the critique of capitalism, uh, and that and by race, it's not just anti-black racism, but even and this is one of the things that Cedric Robinson sort of teaches us that you know capitalism emerged within Europe even before kind of imperialist expansion across the Atlantic, based on uh, an understanding of people as differential. You know, that is to say that um, that race is not always about skin color. In fact, it's, you know, it's amazing how much it's not about skin color. It's about assigning difference, differential value to human life and labor. And that's why uh, the Irish, for example, in early Europe in the transition to capitalism were like, you know, the the equivalent to like, the black subject. They mm-hmm. were s- second class citizens by virtue of the fact they're colonized. Jews, Roma, I mean, there's all kinds of ways that immigrant labor, you know, and also anti Asian uh, uh, violence precedes, like, precedes the formation of the United States itself, you know. And so that's another way in which, again, um, it's an ideology that assigns differential value to human life and labor. And what does that translate into? It translates into a capitalism to move it up to the present that you know, involves predatory lending that, mar- that targets certain people because they're more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Taxation, disfranchisement, a whole history of, of looting, um, the fact that uh, uh, you know, property values in certain neighborhoods 
are simply less by virtue of the fact that certain bodies are in those neighborhoods. That is what we talk about racial capitalism. Because if capitalism were sort of pure and above racial difference, then there's no reason to have differential value based on race. We'd all Basically, we'd all be making the same terrible wages and the value of our homes would be all the same. But that's mm -hmm. not how it works. It has nothing to do with what people's behavior. It has to do with the projection of value and, and, and myths about people's behavior. And that's right. what where we are. And so one last thing, you know, we, we talk about universal um, policies like healthcare. Well, that's great. I mean, I'm all for you know Green New Deal, but the environment, the climate catastrophe affects Black and Brown people, Indigenous people, differently by where they're located geographically. Um, healthcare is different, you know. I mean, in terms of whether you have access to a public hospital, and when you get to the hospital, do they assume that you're probably a drug addict and not having a um, a, a, a crisis of sickle cell, you know? Right. So these kinds of things affect us all the time. So we've yeah. got to fight racism and capitalism at the same time. The the um, if you know the, the, that question comes up in my life as a union organizer, and it's one of the reasons I like doing union work is like th some folks have the temptation to say we have to unify the workers, and so let's avoid divisive issues by race, about like race, and what. I have found in my life is that you can't unify unify the workers unless you directly engage with the ways that workers are divided, because those division it, it's like those divisions exist in the real world, and either we deal with them or the or the enemy does. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Um, and so it's like at doing union organizing, you get to have like conversations that I've actually had in my career of like I don't care if you don't like Filipinos, you are going to lose your health care if you don't go talk to them. Right. Uh, so right. what are you going to do about it? You know? Right. Uh, right. Well, this is, this is also one of the, the problems that we all deal with. I mean, I've had many conversations with people in DSA and other organizations. And if you look at our history, th there's, there's a narrative that says it's, it's like people of color. It's like Black people, all those people who are sort of marginalized are the ones that have to learn about their class. Like if you can only get those, you can only organize those people and get them in, then we'd be okay. And the way to get them in is to tell them to forget about their racial issues. When in fact, it's been the other way around. It's been, you know, black working class organizations have been begging white folks, like, please, we want to organize you. You, you gotta come with us. And every time there's these robust interracial movements like in the 19th century, they collapse, not, not on the petard of black nationalism, but they collapse on white racial identity politics. And it's not everyone, it's not everyone, but that's how capital works. They're able to, to buy out with ch chump change, white workers to buy them out of the class. And this has been the real, real sticking point. And I just say, I'm very proud of the fact that it was black labor organizers in the 19th century were the only ones, the, the most robust in terms of their opposition to the Chinese Exclusion Act. Mm. You know? Meanwhile, all, everyone else is like, yeah, yeah, we like the class, but not the Chinese. And bl black labor organizers like, you know, that doesn't make any sense to me, right. you know? 
Intersectionality. We've discussed on the show before. Learn about it. And also read Robin's books. Um, I mean, look, Robin, years ago when you and I, you know, 2004 mm -hmm. Life After Capitalism Conference, you know, um, we... And, you know, the discussions around prison abolition, around police abolition um, were mostly fringe, not in a right. bad way, in a, in a you know, in a good way in, the, in that they were happening in organizations like Critical Resistance um, and, and, and others and, and intellectuals like yourself. And now, thanks to this massive movement, the idea that we would think of, as, of safety as something beyond the police that we would think of remaking them that that time and time and time again they've proven themselves to be unworthy um to police our you know to be in our streets my cat's right. gonna jump in front of me right now but like <laughs> what what do you what do you make of that what do you make of the fact that every it's gone so mainstream you know that like just as, at, at once we've got more fascism and more like yeah white knee-jerk reaction right. you've also got people like really imagining stuff differently right right no that's that's a very important very beautiful point and in fact um this is a lesson of the about the power of organizing uh that organizing is not something you do in three months or a year. Uh, what culminated uh, it, with the George Floyd uh, protests or the Black Spring was three, was decades. And so I think you, you mentioned critical resistance, but these all these organizations that back in the day, Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, the Prison Activist Resource Center, Jericho Movement, the Prison Moratorium Project, um, uh, the Labor Community Strategy Center, Insight, which is Women of Color Against Violence, Yes. And, and the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, they've been pushing uh, an abolitionist politics since really the 1990s and got more sophisticated. And then Angela Davis publishes Our Prisons Obsolete, which when it came out, people were like, you know, really? That's a crazy idea. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And then you have thinkers like uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Mary Macaba uh, and others who've been saying this over and over again and getting things in the press and getting discussions going. And um, so abolition moves from being a discourse about prisons per se as places to really thinking about the entire carceral system. So that's a lot of work. And then yeah. from that, you you think, okay, we have the Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, Eric Garner, Rakia Boyd, on the responses to that form new organizations like the Dream Defenders, Black Youth Project, 100, We Charge Genocide, um, the Movement for Black Lives, uh, you know, just we can go on and on and on. Let Us Breathe Collective. These are organizations that in some ways, you know, were the, the offspring, the progeny of those struggles in the 1990s. Yeah. And so part of my book is actually about that. It's sort of saying that, you know, there's two streams. There's, there's a stream of understanding racial capitalism as this long project, but it's also that the 1990s, that is, uh, opposition to a liberal regime. That is, you know, it's always, we have to remember yeah. that it's, yeah. it's, it's our opposition to, to liberalism that produces the most robust radical movements. It was against LBJ and against Clinton. And we see uh, just how um, incredibly robust and radical some of these movements were, which laid, paved the foundation for what we have today. Now, that's the good news. The bad news, <laughs> is that, and this is bad news, and the bad news is that um, it's, it's not, 
you know, it's going to be easy to, not easy, but the co-optation of abolition mm -hmm. is kind of going on right now. And so what's happening is that in the name of abolition, there are people who are substituting um, the old forms of reform and, and passing it off as uh, new forms of public safety. And so mm -hmm. the, the current trial around George Floyd, uh, you have all these people who are like, oh yes, I can't wait. He, let, let's make sure he gets at least 30 years, 40 years. And abolitionists saying, well, no, we're not fighting to prosecute, to put you know, Derek Chauvin in cages. We're trying to like remake public safety. And that is losing as people are saying, well, he is a bad apple. And what we need is oversight. We need better cops. We need better training. We need you know, altering use of force policy. We need body cams. We need banning chokeholds. That's going to be the, in the name of all this radical thinking. Right. And the election of Biden required kind of pushing the defund the police part off the table. Right. You know, for a minute. Yeah. The, the um, So sometime last year I was at my parents' house um, and, I, and uh, I was pooping. And um, as you as, do, as you do. And, and I was looking at the magazines that were that were next to the toilet. And I was thumbing through mm -hmm. the magazines. They had an issue with The Economist. And so The Economist, this is a, this is a, uh, the week before mm -hmm. George Floyd was murdered. The Economist ran an article about how the Black Lives Matter movement had lost its way and had run out of gas. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it was like the mm -hmm. biggest like miss uh you know i mean it was it was so stark to see that um you know in retrospect and so i think you're talking about something like for for people who are you know not necessarily lifelong activists and haven't right. seen it go through many times could you sort of talk through this thing that like um uh that that the part of social movements that you see like where you see people in the streets all over the all over the country and like mass mobilization is like is the part that happens at the end uh and that there's sort of the like the the uh the what's the what what, what do you call it the rhizome like the mm -hmm. the subterranean you know fungus that is growing <laughs> uh, uh you know to, to to create the basis for it that that you don't see i mean you don't see unless you know to go look for it Right. Um, but that's right. true of every social movement. That is so true. And in fact, um, the, the fact that the press calls it the Black Lives Matter movement as if Black Lives Matter was an actual organization, mm. it sort of is, but sort of wasn't. It was more of an ethos. Because if you actually count the number of organizations that participated in that mobilization, many of which were very much alive and well and participated in the mobilization around Occupy. You know, um, you're talking about hundreds of organizations, hundreds. And the Movement for Black Lives, which is distinct from Black Lives Matter, uh, is a coalition of over 100 organizations. Some of them are labor. And what's also the, the other myth is that this is presumption that Black Lives Matter was simply a group of young people responding to particular kinds of, uh, of, of moments, uh, murders. And I've been in many rooms with many organizers and you're talking about a multi-generational movement. You've got people who came out of SNCC, you know, mm. uh, who came out of the um, industrial concentration struggles of the 1970s, who are in the same room with 
kids who are 13, 14 years old. And that's what the movement really looks like. And all this knowledge, the Black Radical Congress, which goes back to like 1997, um, some of those same folks, Bill Fletcher, I mean, or Organization for Black Struggle, you know, um, th these were organizations that were around back then and brought all that knowledge and experience into the room. And that's the true story. And that's not the story that the media wants to tell because it's too hard to tell. It makes it seem as though people just come out because they're inspired and that it was the, it was a, it there's a catalyst, but yeah. they're not coming out because they're inspired. They're coming out partly because they're organized and that's how they, they shape the discourse, you know, on the ground. Right. Right. And, the, and that distinction between movements and then and organizations and then organizations and political representation. And I think we're, we were sort of talking about that, how you were saying earlier that potentially a lot of the movement energy and grassroots energy might actually get, um, for lack of a better term, like, I don't know, whitewash watered down into body cams and things like that. Um, which is a very, uh, which is another interesting conversation. Um, that, that I'd like to have, but I wanted to talk cause we sort of, I tease this and, I, you know, you mentioned, mentioned Cedric Robinson and you wrote the foreword to a new edition of his book, Black Marxism. And you basically say that this moment of American fashion, fascism, we could potentially learn something from Black Marxism and critiques of sort of traditional Marxism as a way to combat fascism. Um, at least I think that's what you were saying. And maybe you want to explain like, like, yeah, what are the openings that you see there? And, and what is black Marxism, I guess, very briefly. And, and then what are the openings? Like, how can it better equip us to confront this, this moment? Right. Right. Ask, you asked the biggest question and say very briefly. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> it's okay. Um, you know, answer, it's, answer to haiku, please. Right. Yeah, yeah, haiku. Yeah. Okay. So what we learned from Cedric Robinson, both from Black Marxism and another book called Forgeries of Memory and Meaning, is that fascism predates fascism. Simply mm. put, that is to say that part of the intellectuals he writes about in the movements uh, see, uh, saw fascism, saw reconstruction as anti-fascist. If we think of slavery as a form of fascism, they saw, you know, the indigenous people fighting in Sand Creek or Skeleton Cave, uh, Wounded Knee as anti-fascism. Um, workers fighting the violence in West Virginia's coal mines as anti-fascism. Um, and black intellectuals in particular, you know, fighting the prison industrial complex, you know, is also a kind of anti-fascism. So it's, a, it's expanding the definition of it, which is why so many black radicals in the 1920s had been, had been fighting, for example, the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in 1935, but even before that, challenging Italian fascism when Forbes said Mussolini is the greatest thing that's ever happened to capitalism. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, it's very simply put that we have long lessons to learn about native fascism, even if that fascism doesn't hold state power, because we're still fighting fascism every day. When right. the, and one last thing, the, 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 the capital insurrection, uh, which surprise a lot of people. For many of us, the same people who showed up at the Capitol were the same people in the streets in uniform fighting us. And that's, that's the recognition. Yep. But that's the fascism we're fighting. Absolutely. Many of them, a, 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 mm -hmm. like a, a 
12 to like maybe 12%, maybe more, maybe even to 30%. I forgot the latest numbers. They keep on finding more dudes who used to be or are currently in uh, the police or armed forces mm -hmm. who were storming the Capitol. And I think that in the same way, this is just from what you were saying earlier, you know, Christopher Ray, the FBI director was like, well, Antifa is more of a, it's more of a like ethos. It's more of a movement. You know, he said that and that was such a funny moment. And in the same way, like you were saying, the way BLM is sort of misrepresented as a monolith um, rather than it's an ethos. You know, right. it's it's a broader movement. There are organizations that have been working on various, very concrete issues around it that have contributed to it. Um, but yeah, it's an ethos. I we have to move on. But lucky for everyone watching, we are going to continue this conversation and move into talking about labor and, and a predominantly black workforce in Alabama that was unsuccessful in their union drive in Bessemer uh, in an Amazon warehouse. But that's not the end of it. So we're going to break that all down in like 10 minutes. Uh, Patreon.com slash Bituation Room is where you can go to join if you want to hear more from NATO and Robin um, all about that. I'm just going to be asking questions. So yes, go over there, patreon.com slash situation room, become a patron. And we'll be go, we'll be going live in like in 10 to 10 to 15, but we've got one final segment. <laughs> we want to keep it light. Just something fun. Um, you guys, have you, are you familiar with Yahoo questions? NATO Robin. Yeah, uh, I, th I know a little bit about it, but I, tr I try to avoid Yahoo questions. <laughs> <laughs> smart man clearly a little little too advanced for the yahoo questions and answers yahoo um answers, right. well apparently it's going bye-bye there's going to be no more yahoo questions but don't worry there will still be dumb questions on the internet but for now we want to know what's your yahoo question before they go so my yahoo question um <laughs> so i have to make up one huh I could go first. I let me here. Let me give you well, some you, examples. You go first. So you here's go first. some. Here's some. Just for everyone in the chats is in the comments as well. The some some things that people have asked Yahoo. Um, do you think humans will ever walk on the sun? <laughs> okay. A good one. Uh, speaking of Christian Bale, here's a good one. Is Christian Bale a Christian since his name is Christian? I felt myself get so stupid just reading that. Um, how do babies come out of a vagina? I think the answer to this one had something to do with butter. Hmm. And then the, my favorite, am I turning into Taylor Swift? <laughs> <laughs> it was a great, great question. Uh, I will go first. Uh, my, my Yahoo question is so dumb, but I was trying to remember the name of O Fortuna. <laughs> Like, oh, Fortuna, you know that song? Uh, and so I typed into Google, what's the, the really dramatic? The Carmina Burana, bro. Carmina Burana, yeah, Carmina. Yes, Carmina Burana. That's the, that's the that's full the, name. That's the whole piece. Oh, Fortuna is the opening. Whatever. See, now NATO wakes up. Now NATO's yeah. like, you're like ah, I'm going to look at my phone. I don't give a shit. Now, oh, Carmina. I don't even know. Fortuna. So I wrote in, I put in Google, what's that name of the really dramatic opera song? And that is my, that's my Yahoo question. What's the name of that dramatic opera song? Uh, and I eventually found it. So, and, and that was the answer, Fortuna. The answer was NATO. The Carmina Burana by Carl oh, Orff. Okay. 
Car- Carmina Barana. Carmina Barana. So, uh, Nato, what's your dumb YouTube or your uh, dumb Yahoo question? Uh, why am I itchy? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Um, So, okay. So I need to come up with when I think about um, uh, questions I had as a kid, you know, one is, does whipped cream hurt? (laughs) That's Uh, a good one. That is a good one. Who's got dad jokes now? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I I feel like your kids... Does whipped cream hurt? That's true. You, th- it, there should be more work involved in whipped cream. There is mm-hmm. if it's handmade, but you know. Um, okay, from the chat, is Tuxedo Chitty single? Very, uh, very single and hot if you like, like the Botticelli esque mm-hmm. bodies of a cat. Um, how do you solve a problem like Maria? What is Maria? Hurricane Maria? It's a West Side Story reference, I think. Yeah, that's what oh, I, yeah, think. Yeah. I would think that. that- you know, my, my wife played Maria um, in her um, junior high school uh, stage performance. Nice. She, she's now a famous actor, but, you know. that That's how she got her start? That's how she got her start, playing Maria. And I have it on a cassette tape, her singing. Oh, it's that's a- adorable. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, okay, why haven't I gotten my period yet? Solid. Um, <laughs> I've asked that a lot. Track it. I still haven't tracked it. Many years, still not tracking it. Uh, is Yahoo still a thing? Perfect. How do we drill for green energy? That's good. Just it, you, it's it's in the Earth's cr- core. Like you just got to go further, and you'll get the <laughs> Earth, the green energy. It's there. It's below the shale gas. Uh, yeah, just keep going, bro. Just sure keep one. going. Um, g- goodbye, Yahoo. Uh, an- questions and you you were you're lovely. You're funny. Um, now I wish I had our pregnant video I could play for everybody, but everyone needs to go look up the, am I pregnant video on YouTube? Cause that shit's hilarious. Um, Robin DG Kelly, we will see you in just a few minutes, but thank you so much. Everyone, um, stay tuned and look out for all of his, all of his books, his forthcoming book, but also please read freedom dreams, the black Rad- radical imagination, hammer and hoe, Alabama communists during the great depression, Listen to him, watch him, follow him. He's got great interviews, uh, one in the LA Times. You're the best. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. All right. Take good care. And Nato Green, where can people find you? Uh, uh, at Nato Green on Twitter, Mr. Nato Green on Instagram. Uh, uh, check out my albums on Bandcamp is the best way to buy them uh, in terms Hell of getting yeah. money to the artists. Uh, I have two albums up on Bandcamp, the NATO Green Party and the Whiteness album. You know, you know, no, no big deal. Uh, they're great albums if you haven't listened to them yet. Soon, Go get them. Soon, soon, there's merch coming. Really? Yeah. With the yeah. wonder, with the Wonder Bread. The the label decided to make uh, commemorative uh, one, the like the Wonder Bread from the Whiteness album, like enameled pins. Oh, I love it. Oh, yeah. I want one. Okay, get them with the this the hard backs. Okay, anyway. And thank you guys all for being here. I'm so sorry I didn't get a chance to read your questions, but I'm going, or your your uh, your comments, but I'm going to right now. Um, Anya Harris, thank you for the super chat. I can, I can kind of envision Mansion lurking around a watery cave in West Virginia, slurping up tar like Gollum, right? Right? Like on all fours, 
just kind of like <laughs> I totally see that too. Um, on QAnon, fat guy named Tiny, great name, uh, uh, on Twitch says genius military intelligence. That is a three-way oxymoron. Absolutely. And hey, we got Twitch subs, Brandy Lou too. Dow Leah, Kin of Wolf, Trish, Trish the Dish 1978, Antifa, love it. Um, Deb King, Deb Kint Ty, cool. Um, Frank Morning Tree, thank you guys so much. Hell yeah. And also, if you want to tip the show, but you don't want to become a patron, that's fine. TBR Live on Venmo, TBR Live on Cash App. And also, if you're listening as a podcast and you don't have a lot of money, rate the podcast. Five stars. That's as good as money. That is money to me. I read all your reviews. It means a lot. Um, and thanks so much to all the people who work on the show. Becca Roofer, Kelly Carey, Dorsey Shaw, Ellie Hoffman. And once again, we stream every Sunday, 5.80 Eastern on YouTube and Twitch. And you can listen afterwards as a podcast, like I've already mentioned. And let's just relish in the moment that John Boehner, just a man who by 2021 standards, looks okay in his baby blue eyes and overly tanned skin, getting drunk and reading out loud his, uh, his audio book to anyone who'll listen. Take a listen. You'll never know where you'll end up. That's freedom. I'll raise a glass to that any day. P.S. Ted Cruz, go fuck yourself. <laughs> John Boehner, you son of a bitch. Mm. I'll drink to that, though. Fuck Ted Cruz. And fuck you, too, John. And also, fuck the patriarchy. And fight the power. And don't just bitch about it. Be about it, y'all. See you next week. Bye!